book of Psalms, chapter number 20, Psalms, chapter 20. While you turn there, a couple of text messages I got today with some prayer requests. I didn't jot them down, but I'll trust that the Holy Ghost bring them to your memory. Uh, Hannah Finolio's mother is in the hospital and uh, in in very precarious uh, conditions. So I just want you to lift her up in prayer and the family. It could go anyway, and, uh, you know, we're going to trust the Lord with it. But I want you to pray for them and then pray for the Hedricks. They've got a lot of sickness in their home right now, so lift them up to the Lord in prayer. And let me say how much I appreciate Larry, and I appreciate him doing the announcements. I enjoyed it. felt like a throwback. Amen. Uh, those of you all that have been around here for a lot of years know that for a lot of years Larry did the announcements, and uh, I enjoy him doing that and appreciate his willingness to serve the Lord. Psalms chapter number 20, and I'd like to read the entirety of this psalm, not very long, just nine verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Psalms chapter number 20, and verse number 1, the Bible says, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary. And strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings, and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Grant thee according to thine own heart, and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the King hear us when we call. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us come and be in this place. I've already been encouraged just by being here and hearing the songs and the testimonies. Lord, even the smiles and the handshakes that I have, have received and And Lord, it's just such a blessing to come to your house and it be a warm place. And it be a place where people enjoy being and a place where the name of Christ is magnified and the people of God get encouragement. Lord, I just want to thank you for my church family and for my church home. I pray that you would, uh, Lord, take your word tonight and use it to magnify and uplift your name and your person in our hearts and in our minds tonight. Lord, I pray that if there's any area of our life that must be dealt with, that you, Lord, would deal with it and help us to be obedient as you perform that process. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalms chapter number 20 is a psalm that is chiefly about prayer. Uh, As I read through this psalm, there's a few things that immediately jump out to me, but it reminds me of this truth. You know, and I'm I'm never against exposition. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. But when we read this psalm about prayer, it reminds me of how desperately we need encouragement in prayer. We need exposition in prayer. But probably what we need more than exposition in prayer is encouragement in prayer. I don't know that it's so much that uh, we don't understand prayer. And now let me preface that by saying, of course, there's many things I don't understand. But my prayer life is not lacking because of a lack of understanding. My prayer life is lacking because of a lack of dedication. And the chances are in your life, if your prayer life is lacking, it's probably because you ain't got the combination figured out correctly. It's probably more because you're not applying yourself in the area of prayer. Prayer is amongst the Christian activities the most neglected. And I think it's because the flesh really can have no part in closet prayer. Uh, the flesh just has to sit back and allow the new man to run things when you get in the prayer closet. 
And so often it is an area of our Christian life that is neglected. And I'd say a great many of us could uh, lay at the feet uh, many of our problems in life to all the cobwebs that we've let grow up in our prayer closet and around our prayer line. And so this psalm, Psalms 20, is dedicated to encouraging the believer in prayer. And I want you to notice three thoughts before we begin to preach tonight. Notice in verse number one, we see the need of prayer. It begins this way, the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. You know, you're going to have days of trouble in your life. The psalmist begins by reminding us all that we need prayer because we have problems. We're going to have troubles in our life. I hope you had a wonderful day today. I hope the sun shined upon you. I hope you didn't have any problems. I hope you caught no red lights. It was all green lights the whole way. But the reality is, sooner or later, if not today, a day soon coming in your life is going to be a day of trouble. Now, what do we mean by a day of trouble? Well, a day with troubles, with problems, with complications, with obstacles, with things we didn't expect and problems that we cannot surmount and and questions that we have no answer for. You know, prayer is built for a troubled people. Uh, If we didn't have no troubles, we wouldn't need prayer. But God has prescribed for you and I the process of prayer and gaining his attention and, and, and gaining answers for our petitions because God, knowing mankind, knows that we're going to have days of trouble. You say, preacher, I had a bad day. I had a troubled day. Well, have you prayed? Have you took that matter to God? You may have had some problem come crashing into your life today. Wouldn't be a surprise. Uh, this is a Wednesday night crowd. I mean, it's, uh, there's probably churches more people than ours across this city. But even in a crowd this size, no doubt there are people who would say, Preacher, my day was going good, and then I got that phone call. Preacher, my day was going good, and then I opened that email. Uh, Preacher, my day was going good, and then I bumped into that person. Now all of a sudden, my day has been spun into a tailspin, and I am having a day of trouble. Well, listen, there's a prescription for your day of trouble, and that's a matter of prayer. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. And then I see the name of prayer. He says this, the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. And then I like this phrase, in the name of the God of Jacob, defend thee. Now, we know who the God of Jacob is. That's Jehovah. That's the God of the Bible. That's the Lord. That's uh, the God. That's the way he's presented oft times in the Old Testament. The Bible says that the real God, the true God, will defend those that come unto him in prayer. But, you know, it's interesting. And, I, you know, there's a lot made of the different and various names of God uh, in the Bible. And I think there's much richness to be understood in, in some of those names. But I sort of like the name that's used here in Psalms chapter 20 and verse number 1. He says the God of Jacob. He doesn't say the God of Abraham. He doesn't say the God of Isaac. He doesn't say the God of Israel. But rather he says the God of Jacob. Now we understand that it's the same God that's the God of all of those persons and entities. But it's interesting the name the Holy Ghost uses here in verse number one, the God of Jacob. You know who Jacob was. Jacob was the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. And in fact, you know that Jacob is the very one who was given the the moniker, the name Israel. And the very reason that we know uh, of the uh, people, the Israelites, as that name Israel is because of Jacob. God changed his name there at the brook Peniel from Jacob to Israel. And he said, as a as a prince, hast thou strength with God and with men because he he prevailed. The book of Hosea says he wrestled and prevailed uh, through strong tears and supplication. That whole scene is a scene of prayer. I, I don't know about you, but if I was picking a name uh, when I wanted to talk about God and associate him with prayer, the name, the God of Israel would be a pretty good one. But that's not what we have here. 
Instead, he says, the God of Jacob. Now, Jacob being the same man as Israel, but what's the distinction? We told you what the name Israel means, but what does Jacob mean? It means supplanter, trickster, deceiver. God could have used his new name, but instead he used his old name. And it's a reminder to me of Jacob in his weakness, in his failures, in his frailty, in his infirmity. And it's a reminder that, hey, how do I say this? Prayer ain't just for those that are spiritual. If it was, man, I wouldn't be praying. It ain't, and prayer is not just the, the super awesome, technical, ultra, uh, high level activity of those that have everything figured out. But it's the weak murmuring and petition of the broken individual whose life has grown complicated, whose flesh has grown dominant, whose uh, weakness has bubbled to the surface. It's the God of Jacob. Hey, if it had said the God of Abraham, I might have been too timid to pray to him. If it had said the God of Isaac, I might not have been bold enough, Brother Ken, to pray to him. If it had said the God of Israel, I might not have felt transformed enough to enter into his presence. But the God of Jacob, hey, I can identify with Jacob. I see the name of prayer in this passage. Man, that that helps my soul. Even if it don't help you, man, that helps me. I look a lot more like Jacob than I do like Israel. I look in the mirror, man. I, I look, you may think you look more like Israel than you do Jacob. I hope that's true if you do pray for me. But I look a lot more like Jacob than I do Israel. I look a lot more like that trickster and that supplanter, that fleshly man, that carnal man, that weak man, that earthly minded man, that broken man, that hopeless man, that helpless man. That's who I look like more than, than looking like Israel. And I'm glad the God of Jacob will hear my prayers. I see the need of prayer. I see the name of prayer. But then I want you to jump down to verse number 9. There's a fascinating phrase. I want to read it to you. He says this, Save, Lord. That's a pretty good prayer. Amen. I think if I get that figured out, I'd probably get a lot of my problems solved. Save, Lord. Save, Lord. And then he says this, Let the king hear us when we call. I want to preach to you on that thought tonight. Let the king hear us. You know why I'm interested in that phrase tonight? Because it's a king that wrote it down. David wrote this, and David's not talking about an earthly king, but he's talking about a heavenly king. And here's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the nearness of prayer. David, he's a man who has everything at his disposal, but he's run into problems in his life that are beyond his means and ability and capability. And he prays, and here's what he says. I'm petitioning to a king higher than me, to an authority higher than me, to a power higher than me, I'm petitioning to a God that has absolute control over all things, should he choose to exercise it. And he's saying, let the king, the one that can answer our petitions, the one that has the authority and the ability, let him hear us. It reminds me that no matter what I'm facing in my life, we may have run out of people to run to, but if we've got the Lord, we've never run out of someone to run to. Let the king hear us, he says. I want you to notice in this psalm three truths about prayer that encourage me to pray and encourage me about prayer. Look with me at verse number two. Uh, The Bible says this, Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. So what's the first truth about prayer that the psalmist that David speaks of here? Well, the first thing he speaks about is the place of prayer. Or let me say it this way. He speaks about where prayer is directed. Remember what he says in verse 9. I want the king to hear me. So where then would he offer this petition? Well, it's a very natural, I think, assumption. If you want the king to help you, you've got to go to the throne room to speak to him. 
I like how he says it in verse number two. He talks about the place of sanctuary. He says, send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Now, no doubt David had in mind when he said this, the tabernacle. And no doubt he had in mind when he said Zion, Jerusalem. Uh, at that time, at that season in human history, there was not a temple yet. It would be built in the day of David's son Solomon. Uh, but there was still a sanctuary. There was the tabernacle, the mobile place of worship of God. And it had been set up, moved uh, from Shiloh and moved from some of the various other places it had dwelt and had been set up in a in a sort of permanence in Jerusalem. And no doubt when David says this, when he talks about the sanctuary and he talks about Zion, he's talking about the tabernacle and he's talking about Jerusalem. But now what did that mean to David? Was it because there was something proprietarily noble or good or, or supernatural about the badger skins and the, and the wood and the sockets and the frame and the coverings and the curtains? No. All those things were patterned after heavenly things. It wasn't anything in and of themselves by themselves. And when he says Zion, is it that hill itself that he is really appealing to? I don't think so. He doesn't say, let the hill hear us. He doesn't say, let the curtains hear us. He says, let the king hear us. And the thing that made the sanctuary meaningful and the thing that made Zion meaningful was that the Lord had named his presence there and that the Lord would inhabit that place, and that the Lord would hear the prayers of his people. So in other words, when he speaks of of where his prayer is directed, he talks about the sanctuary, he talks about Zion, but those are only meaningful because at that time in history they were viewed as the dwelling place, the place of God's worship and the place of God's working. And what he's saying is this, when I'm praying, I'm praying to the Lord who inhabits the praise of his people, who seeks to fellowship with mankind, who has made a meeting place wherein mankind can meet with him and have his petitions heard. We said a moment ago, all of these earthly things, the book of Hebrews teaches us, were patterned after heavenly things. And they were but shadows of heavenly realities and heavenly truths. And I'm blessed and and pleased to report to you tonight that though the, the temple no longer stands and though the tabernacle and whatever material it was made out of have been long lost to human history, you know, you'd think if God thought that was real important, he would have kept it standing, but he didn't. And the reason why is because now the holy hill that we go to, now the sanctuary that we go to, now the holy city we go to is not one of dirt and not one of wood and not one of stone, but it's an heavenly one that we can go to. The book of of Hebrews goes on to tell us that we are to come boldly under the throne of grace. Man, I'm glad there's grace and I'm glad it's a throne. If it was a throne with no grace, it might not be willing to help me. And if it was grace with no throne, it might not be able to help me, Brother Ken. But it's a throne of grace. It has both the sympathy and ability It has both pity and providence. We're to come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. He talks about the place of sanctuary. And then he talks about it as a place of sacrifice. Verse 3. He says, remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Say law. What does David mean by this? Well, I think what he means is, is this. He's saying, you've gave us a means to approach unto you. You've asked that we come to you with with offerings and with burnt sacrifice. And he's saying, we've come in the manner you've asked. And the sacrifices have been given. And we have followed the prescribed method and process. And now we are anticipating that predicated on what you've commanded us to do and what we've performed and that has been done, that we can gain an entrance and an audience amongst you that our prayers might be heard. 
Now, I love, hey, listen, that's beautiful truth in the Old Testament, but man, it shines in the New Testament. When we recognize this reality that whatever sacrifices were given at that time, whatever propitiation or whatever atonement, rather, that they could provide was always uh, temporary and was always just a placeholder for a greater sacrifice that would be given, for a greater status that would be provided, for a greater relationship that would be made available to us. And I'm glad to report, you say, preacher, why do we go to God with prayer? Why can we go to God with prayer? Because we have a high priest seated at the right hand of the Father that ever liveth to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ the righteous, who's entered into within the veil and provided us an anchor place. We have a relationship through the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And though I may not have standing in and of myself, though I may have no right in and of myself, though I may not have any ability in and of myself, there has been blood applied. There has been a sacrifice given. I don't have to just uh, crawl my way into the throne room. I can in boldness march my way into the throne room as a welcome guest that I might come in and offer my petition. Preacher, why would you have boldness enough to pray? Because I'm there by the blood of Christ. By the sacrifice, what God asked for has been given, not by me and my merit, not through self-righteousness, not through a merit of my own or credibility of my own, but through the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, I can pray and I have a reason to pray and I have a right to pray because of what Christ did for me. So he talks about the place of prayer or where prayer is directed. But then look at verse number four with me. He says this, grant thee according to thine own heart. And fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. So the psalmist speaks first about the place of prayer or where prayer is directed. But number two, he speaks about the purpose of prayer or what prayer does. Why do we pray? What's the purpose of prayer? Remember years ago reading uh, the famous book, I think probably uh, if you've been around uh, church any length of time, you've at least heard of it if you've not read it. But I remember years ago uh, reading John R. Rice's book on prayer, prayer, asking and receiving. And the whole thesis of that book is that all that prayer is is just asking and receiving. And while I will certainly agree that there was a need probably at the time to emphasize the simplicity and the practicality of prayer relative to the high church theology of so many seminaries of the day, I do think it probably leaves a little something out. Prayer is more than just asking and receiving. It is asking and receiving. But if you think prayer is simply about you getting the things that you want, you have missed out on the greater, richer, deeper purpose of prayer. Now, God will give you things through prayer. Praise His holy name. I don't deserve for Him to, but I mean, the things God has given me through prayer that I've just asked for. If I'd known all it took was to ask, I guess I would have asked a lot longer ago, but I'm pig-headed and stubborn, and, and I had not because I asked not. But when I finally asked, God gave it and God granted it. But you know, ultimately, God doesn't need us to ask to bless us with things. Uh, the Bible says that uh, our Heavenly Father already knows what we have need of. And if we have to ask for everything we get, you've got a lot of things you've got some splaining to do about in your life. Because you probably got a lot of things you never asked for. But God blessed you and gave it to you anyway. And so I don't want to minimize the importance of asking for things in prayer and, and viewing prayer as a means of obtaining things we need from the Lord. But I want you to notice how the psalmist describes the purpose of prayer. He says this, Grant thee according to thine own heart, and fulfill all thy counsel. 
And you say, well, preacher, who is he speaking to? Well, we can tell when we get to verse 5 because he says this, we will rejoice in thy salvation. So when he says, grant thee according to thine own heart, it's not God speaking to the believer, but rather it's the believer speaking to God. And the psalmist is saying, here's the purpose of prayer. I would say, number one, it's to exercise his will in our lives. Notice how he says it, grant thee according to thine own heart. Do you trust God's heart enough to trust him with the matters of your life? Do you trust him enough that if he got what he wanted, you'd be satisfied? Or do you merely view prayer as a means of you getting what you want? Can I tell you this? You can get what you want and be very miserable. You can get what you want and be very unhappy. You can get what you want in your life, be very unfulfilled. But if God gets what he wants in our life, therein lies the path to happiness. He says, fulfill all thy counsel. Well, what's counsel? It's wisdom. And here we could say it real, real simple. The psalmist says, Lord, I just want you to have what you want, and I want you to do what you think is right. You know, prayer in our life, part of the purpose of it, is not that our will might be exercised in God's life, but that God's will might be exercised in our life. And if your perspective on prayer is that it's all about you just getting what you want from God, you're going to have a very petty, petulant, short-lived prayer life. It won't take you long to pray for something that God won't give you. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because you're carnal. That's why. You'll pray. You'll ask for something that you ain't got no business having, just like I would. And God will love you too much to give it to you. And then you'll sulk and get mad at God. But if instead you'd stop and say, now, Lord, it's not about me getting what I want, but it's about you having what you want in my life, you'll find that prayer gets answered all the time. God is very interested in seeing his will done in our lives. So it's to exercise his will. But then look at verse 5. I like this. We will rejoice in thy salvation. Did you know it's the will of God for you to brag on him for what he's doing in your life? You ain't got to pray about it. I heard a preacher say the other day, there's only two times you ever ought to praise God, and that's when you feel like it and when you don't. Amen? Uh, you're, it's the will of God. It is ordained. It is biblical. It is scriptural. It is in order for us to praise the Lord. And that's what the psalmist says. He says, I want to brag in what God's doing. I want to rejoice in thy salvation. He says, in the name of our God, I like this next phrase, we will set up our banners. Banners. Uh, Something that denotes the house or the lineage, the pedigree, the allegiance that you have in your life. I'm under this banner. Well, let me say this. Part of what prayer does in our life is it puts it, it puts us under God's banner, puts us under God's banner. Uh, God will always exalt and extol his own name. And when we bring things to the Lord and submit ourselves in faith, in prayer, it makes God's interest our interest and it exalts him. We will set up our banners. And let me just pause this isn't part of my message. I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, but that's the banner we ought to be under. Man, everybody's going to try to put you under banners and put you under flags and put you under labels. And I'm not against labels. I mean, listen, labels have a purpose and they belong. And and it's delusional and childish to believe that we shouldn't have any labels or affiliations or associations in life. That's naive. That's living in a dream world. But at the end of the day, the banner we ought to find ourselves under before all others is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ought to be our banner. And then he says this, the Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now, why does he say that last little part? Well, he says, I want I want Jehovah to be the one that gets the credit. I want the Lord to be the one that gets the glory. I want the Lord to fulfill all thy petitions. And we would give it this phrase. It's not only to exercise his will, but it's to exalt his name. It's part of the reason that that uh, killing your praise will kill your prayer. 
I wonder how many times people have a dead prayer life because they have a dead praise life. And the, the predominant reason God works in your life and mine is so that he might heap praise and glory upon himself because he's worthy of it. And if we ain't going to tell people about what he did for us, why would he do things for us? What we're doing is we are distilling and stripping down the matter of prayer to being solely attributed to and solely considerate of God's love and providential care of us. Well, that's a good... Uh, listen, God does love us. God does care about us. But you know what I'd also love to stack in my corner when I'm praying? The fact that God is deserving of all glory and that God tries to heap glory upon Himself. I don't just want Him to answer my prayers because He loves me. I don't just want Him to answer my prayers because He He is uh, providentially uh, uh, committed to provide for me as His child. But I also want Him to delight in answering my prayers because I'm going to tell people about how He's answered my prayers. I'm going to glorify Him through those answered prayers. I'm going to exalt his name. So I see the place of prayer and the purpose of prayer. But then look at verse 6 with me. He begins to talk about the promise of prayer. He says, Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. The psalmist talks about the promise of prayer. We could say it this way, who prayer depends on. But when we go to the Lord and pray, what are we trusting in? Why do we think we could or should do that very thing? Well, notice what he says in verse number six. He talks about as the reason that we pray or the thing that gives us confidence in our prayer. Number one is the faithfulness of God's nature. He says, now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. Now, why would he say that? What's that based upon? Because the Lord had already saved his anointed. Now, I'm keenly aware of the messianic connotations of verse number six. And I know who the Lord's anointed is. And the degree to which that David understood the significance even of what he was saying, I'm not sure. But I believe with all my heart that in David's mind and in David's perspective, what he's saying in saying this is God has proved himself faithful. I know that he saves his anointed. I know he will hear us. I know he will save us with his strength. Why? Because God had proven that in David's life. And the reason he prayed was because God had showed himself faithful He showed himself faithful. He didn't have to question whether God would be faithful. He had seen that God was faithful. Uh, The psalmist once writes that uh, once hath it been said, twice have I heard that all power belongeth unto God. That's an interesting phrase. Once have I heard this, twice hath it been said. Why did he say that? He says, well, I was taught it once and then I showed it once. I was told it once and then I showed it once. I was told that all power belongeth to the Lord. But he says, I've, I've heard it twice because I've seen it expressed through human experience and through my life. And in a very similar fashion, I think David is saying here, I know the Lord saves his people. I know that he hears his people. I know that he gives them strength when they need it because he's done it in my life. And I'm going back to him and I'm praying to him because I've seen him be faithful. And I have every reason. Hey, God's never given me a reason not to pray to him. Never once. He's given me uh, multitudes of reasons to pray to him. I've seen him answer prayers this week that were beyond the reach of human hand and human capability. I've seen him do it this very... I'm not pulling something way dusty out of the newspapers, yellowed newspapers from a hundred years ago. I'm talking about this week. He has done miracles in my life and in the lives of people that I know. I've seen him faithful. Why would I not trust him? I see the faithfulness of God's nature, but then I see the faith that is needed. I like verse 7. He says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, 
but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And boy, we could dig in there. We could talk about chariots and horses, their functions, their movement, their warfare, their mobility, all the various different things, how they elevate a man and how they protect a man, all the functions and things that a chariot or a horse might be for. But suffice it to say, David is trying to uh, impress upon us the fact that there's all sorts of people that trust in all sorts of things. And, you know, it's funny because the secular world would look at you and I and say, well, you're just a religious fanatic because you believe in something. But they believe in things. Everybody trusts in something. You might trust in your own intellect or in your own ability and your own strength. You might be trusting in the support system of people around you that love you and that care about you. You might be trusting in your own energy and ability to work a job and provide for yourself. You see, you're trusting in something just like I'm trusting in something. It's not a question of whether we're trusting. It's a question of who we're trusting in. Now, I'd say David had a few chariots. I'd say David had a few horses. But he says, that's not what I'm trusting in. In other words, he is not dismissing the practical reality of the function of those things in life. He's just simply recognizing that those things, apart from the providential hand of God, are to no effect and to no avail. You say, preacher, are you saying I should quit my job and just go bum on the street? No, I'm not saying that. You say, preacher, are you saying that I ought to, I ought to just uh, you know quit paying my bills and, and just start asking God to open the windows of heaven? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, at the end of the day, you need to recognize that all of those means and resources you have for providing for yourself mean nothing without the blessing and hand of God in your life. And the lost man that thinks that he has got that figured out and thinks that he has some foundation in that need only go down to the hospital and and talk to those that are gathered in the trauma ward and in the emergency waiting room whose lives have been shattered to pieces to find out that all those things that he thought he had, that he thought he could trust in, can be gone in a moment. David, he, he recognizes this. He says, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And then he says, you know, I've noticed a trend. He says, they are brought down and fallen but we are risen and stand upright. He says, I'm knowing a trend. I'm noticing a trend in this thing. No matter how much a man trusting in himself seems to subsist and, and survive sooner or later, they fall. And he says, no matter what, a person that trusts in the Lord, no matter how precarious their life may seem, no matter how fragile and vulnerable their existence may seem, they always seem to survive. Almost as though those things that the human perspective would trust in will sooner or later fail them. But the believer trusting in the Lord will find that the Lord will never fail them. So I want to encourage you in prayer tonight. I want to tell you, we've got a God we can pray to. The king will hear us. Now we've got a place we can go. We've got a God that'll hear. There's a purpose in prayer. And that that's not just to cross everything off your Christmas list. But it's rather to see the will of God done in your life and the personality of Christ manifest in your life. But I promise you this. Not It's not I promise it. God promises you that if you'll trust in him, he'll show himself faithful and he'll meet your needs. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play. And I want to give you an opportunity, if God spoke to your heart, to meet him down here in this altar. Exercise some of that prayer. Come to the Lord. Some matter in your life you can't figure out. You don't know what to do. You got no answer for. Come talk to God about it. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for the truth of your word. Pray that you'd help us tonight to be bold in approaching unto you. Lord, I know that we can trust you to be faithful to meet our needs. We ask it in Christ's name.